The following message was given by Mark Beckton on Sunday, July 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My family and I usually attend the 8.30 service, <clears throat> so let me introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Mark Beckton. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redemption Hill, and um, it was a treat to hear Dan pray for the elders. Uh, when Lori and I came a part of Redemption Hill, we went to Jen and Tim's house, went through uh, RH Sync then, Next Steps Now, but heard Tim say this. We want to be grace-driven, and not just among uh, the, the members. Very humbly, he said, and we as pastors need your grace too. And to hear the prayers that are prayed by the church for your pastors, thank you for that. It means the world to us that we get to share this experience with you. So, together, you, you know now why I'm preaching here today. Take your Bibles and find Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I'm actually going to preach a message I first preached 15 years ago. And to be honest, I didn't dust it off. Uh, the Father has been constantly renewing and growing me with this passage and this work. Uh, you'll hear more about that as we get started because 15 years ago, I've, I first started with this message because of something I read from a Romanian pastor named Joseph Tsan. Uh, he, he served as a pastor during the uh, Soviet Union's Iron Curtain and lived in a time when if you preached, you died. Then the Iron Curtain was lifted and American pastors began to flood Romania and Joseph became a translator for them. One of the American pastors who basically went from church to church with him was asking Joseph his opinion of American Christianity. And Joseph was hesitant. After pressing more, Joseph said, okay, American Christianity is all about commitment. And the pastor said, isn't that a good thing? Here's what Joseph said. No, it is not. As a matter of fact, the word commitment did not come into great usage in the English language until the 1960s. In Romania, we do not even have a word to translate the English word commitment. Americans love commitment because they're still in control. But surrender is different. If someone points a gun at you and says, hands up, you don't tell them what you're committed to do. You surrender and do as you're told. Americans love commitment because they want to control the degree of their commitment. But the key word, the lost word, is surrender. So, when I read that from Joseph Son, it struck my heart. 
And I long to move from being committed to being surrendered. And candidly, as a pastor, I shared that with my congregation. I, I preached it fairly regularly. It became part of our vocabulary. We wanted to live surrendered. But then my, my oldest son said, Dad, after several years, I, I hear you saying surrendered, but when I look at Scripture, I don't find the word surrendered. He said, it's right, it's biblical, I, I get what you're saying. He said, but the, the picture and the word that goes with it is submission. And whether it is surrender or submission, you find that in Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 24. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There are no degrees of being crucified. You can't say, I'm committed to giving you my right hand today. I'm committed to giving you both my feet for a few hours. There are no degrees of being crucified. And to follow Christ is to take up your cross just as he did. And that's how the Father began to really continue working this in me even this last ash wednesday service we had in april if you came i i I began to continue to massage the core of this but the more that i'm in this the more i I realize there's so much more to being surrendered it's actually a life of submission like my son said so i looked at scripture here's what i found Psalm 81.11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's Romans 8.7. Galatians 5.1, freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. But then there's James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. We're called to surrender. We're called to a cross. We're called to submit to what God is asking of us, which is always for his glory. And as I went further, last three years, I began just a personal journey wanting to see in Scripture the beauty of salvation. And, and as I began to, to go through it, I stopped at John 17. Um, stay where you are, but find John 17 as well. This is Jesus' prayer the night before he's crucified. It kind of gives us the reason behind the submission, his submission, our submission to God. He first will pray, or he later will pray for his 11 who remain. Then he will pray for those who will come to Christ through the gospel being spread by the 11. But at the very beginning, he prays for himself. And listen to this in verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give 
eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. He now defines eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternity means eternity. It does mean a long life. But that's not the rich gift that's been given to us by the Father. Yes, eternity, but it's the eternity of intimately knowing Christ. That word know is gnosko. It means to know intimately through shared experiences. It's the same one that Paul uses in his desire in Philippians 3.10, that I may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that I may know you through the fellowship of your sufferings. Fellowship, intimate, shared experiences together. So with that said, I, I went back to how I first started this sermon 15 years ago, and I thought... I, I wasn't heretical, but it wasn't complete. When I shared this to the body, it came out of my own being that I want us to live surrendered because later in Matthew 16, Christ was saying, the gates of hell shall not prevail against this truth about Christ. And so I really wanted to live surrendered, my body of believers with me, to live surrendered so that we could storm the gates of hell. It's all about us. And I had overlooked the gates of hell had already been breached by Christ. His incarnation coming to live among us sinlessly. And then his crucifixion for us. And then, after upholding the holiness of God in his crucifixion, paying for our sins, he raises from the dead and ruins everything of Satan. For the glory of God. And as I looked more into his life. It was all about his submission to God. For the glory of God. And he purposing experiences in Peter's life. That he might know him intimately that way. Which is what he purposes for your life and mine. So what we'll do for the remainder of this morning. Is look at the life of Simon Peter. Experiences the Father has purposed in his life that lead to submission. And in that submission to know the gate-breaching nature of Christ. So let's start. Matthew chapter 16. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's start first with verse 13, Caesarea Philippi. Prior to this, Christ had been in Galilee. And if uh, you've ever had the privilege to be in Israel and a tour take you to Caesarea Philippi, it's quite a, a bus ride. And they didn't have buses then, so it would have been a two to four day walk. And Christ does everything by intention. So intentionally, he was moving his disciples to get them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, celebrated the Greek gods. 
that was where they worshipped them. If you've gone there, you can see the uh, the earth and how they had focused on worshipping them. And there was this cave. Huge mouth of the cave was opened and they called it, according to Greek mythology, the Gate of Hades. The Gate of Hades. So it's in this spot, surrounded by how the Roman world sees and worships, Jesus asks his 12, who do people say that I am? It's remarkable, though, when they give the answers because their answers are all Jewish. Surrounded by the Roman world, they're giving Jewish answers. Some, and they're complimentary. Some say you're John the Baptist. You're, you're an evangelist calling for repentance among God's people. Complimentary, you're Elijah, you're a miracle worker that will bring revival. Jeremiah, you're a prophet who loves and weeps for the people. Great compliments. But the Jewish people didn't just dole out compliments. The elite will also call Christ a drunkard. They will call him a glutton. They will call him a carouser with sinners, and it's derogatory. And so going back to all of this and what Peter said, Peter's statement that he makes about Christ is extremely bold, both to the Roman world and bold particularly to the Jewish world. Because when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is speaking against public opinion, Greek but particularly Jewish. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it tells that if, if you blaspheme the name of the Lord our God, you are to be stoned. And to say of an individual, to say of a human, to say of a man who has not proven anything else otherwise, that he is God among us, they'll kill you. But Peter boldly says, you are the Christ, the anointed one of God, God among us. Against public opinion. Today, to be a believer, uh, particularly in America, because I'm not living anywhere else to know the landscape, it's the hardest thing to try to protect who you are in society. You feel like you have to guard every word you say and the way that you have said it for the fear of being attacked socially by what you have said. And yet there is nothing new under the sun. When I first preached this sermon, calling for, for my life and from the fo followers that we are part of, to live surrendered, I said, Lord, how do we do this? How do we live surrendered? And the best way is, how do we do it like Christ? And you go to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us, not always at the synagogue, but among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the one of only the Father, full of grace and truth. So I said, okay, if we are to be like Christ, then we have to, to, to live out in our traffic patterns, not just at church, but in our traffic patterns, like Christ, full of grace and truth. And surely if we do that, then the people will see the beauty of Christ and they'll, they'll swoon to that. They'll be appreciative of that. And then I read Randy Alcorn's work, a very small book, uh, The Grace and Truth Paradox. 
The beauty and the difficulty of trying to live like Christ, the fullness of grace and truth. And the great statement that Alcorn makes is something for you and me even right now. He said, if you live like Christ, the fullness of grace and truth, and everybody likes you, you're not doing it right. If you're living the fullness of grace and truth and everybody hates you, you're not doing it right. And the example of that is Christ himself. He had whole towns that would turn out for him and whole towns that will tell him, go away. Masses that will put palm branches under the donkey's feet and masses that will surround him that same week and cry, crucify him. This is the fallen world in which we live. It's the fallen world in which Christ came. And we are to submit to him just as he did to the Father for the Father's glory even in a fallen world. Quick example. Stay where you are, but find Philippians chapter 2. I love looking at verses 1 through 11 because it gives me such a picture of Christ's humility. But look what it says of Christ. It says, have this in mind in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, your mind in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a certain being born in the likeness of man left heaven where he was known for his holiness, where he was revered, where he was understood, and came where he was jeered, criticized, targeted, just for being who he is. Not only true... Not, uh, no one truly saw who he was nor why he was doing what he was doing. His hometown tried to kill him. His half-brothers didn't believe in him, but still gave him advice. Sound familiar? Still, Jesus didn't compromise the message to appease his critics. He didn't tell God's chosen people what they wanted to hear. Jesus humbly endured the name-calling and misinformation out of reverence for God's holiness. He didn't succumb to the pressures of popular opinion. Instead, he kept loving the people in a way that at that time they could not see or understand. And that's what he calls us to do. Now, honestly, at the very beginning, this is the easiest part of the message. Because this is all about everybody else not understanding. When you look at Peter's life and how Christ is going to, to move him into experience after experience and, and also move him to moments where he must submit to know Christ and Christ's nature, it gets harder because it's no longer about somebody else. Now it's about Peter. So go with me to this. Now we're going to deal with submitting to Christ beyond what you want. Not what everybody else, but what you want. Look at verse 21 back in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Some things to unpack. What Peter said any Jewish person would have said because they're longing for the Messiah to come. And he has just said, you are the Christ. But all the Jewish people are longing for the Messiah to come and return Israel to the glory days. as when David was reigning or Solomon was reigning. When it was the richest nation in the world. When all was well. They want that again. This is the Messiah will go to bring that. And yet Christ has said, no, I'm not. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Now this messes with Peter's projection of his life. His picture of what should happen. Picture of what is to come. And so he pushes back. Far be it from you, Lord. That's when Christ pushes back hard. Get behind me, Satan. Now, we're familiar with the name Satan because it's been attributed to the fallen angel, also called the devil. But this label Satan is also used of individuals in Scripture because the word means to oppose and he's already said, Christ to Peter, and this, you understand, get behind me, opposer, because you're opposing the things that are of God, because you're wanting the things that are of man. You're opposing what God wants because you don't want to give up what you want. And that's a hard place to be. This is where confession comes in. I still struggle when God's plans don't seem reasonable. Or agree with my picture and plans. I struggle when God's plans, the ones that glorify Him, leave me confused without answers, particularly when I'm trying to give answers to my family. I struggle when God's plans leave me up at night praying and fretting over so many uncertain scenarios because I can creatively picture a lot. And all of them are unknowns. I can get frustrated with what God is wanting is not what I'm wanting. So how do I submit? How do I submit? Uh, great coaching has come by Christ back in Matthew 16. Look what he does for Peter and the disciples in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So when there is a conflict between Two wants, yours and God's. The coaching is, go back to the cross. Specifically, two crosses. Uh, Christ's, then yours. Uh, back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see Christ in that moment being submissive to the will of Father and sacrificing himself. But there's something confusing. Back in Luke chapter 
22 verse 42 is if there is an internal struggle within Christ over submitting. Here's why. This is what he is praying. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Remove my crucifixion. I know that is your will, but if there is another cup, please, nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you hear that internal conflict? I love this, though. He says, if there's not a better cup, a better way to fulfill Scripture, glorify God, uphold God's holiness, atone for sins, display God's love, remind the elect of God's nature and grace, Jesus prays, then, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Christ submitted for the glory of God. So look to Christ's cross, his submission, to encourage you as you look to your cross. And submission. It takes me back to Joseph Zahn. The reason I wanted to pick up and read about Joseph Zahn is I heard him as a seminary student. It was a large gathering. It was a a conference of some kind. And and Joseph was speaking. And and he, he talked about the times when the Iron Curtain was still down. And when the police had arrested him. They brought him into a room. They they sat him at a table. They sat across and showed him a gun and said, Stop preaching or we're going to kill you. I still remember because I wrote it down as I remembered hearing it. This is what Joseph said. Uh, you say you're going to kill me for preaching, but God wants me to continue. Now, I have to make one of you two angry, so I've decided it's better to make you angry than God. I'll keep preaching. Man, it seems so calm and in your face. I thought, where did that come from? And gratefully, Joseph said, you know, that answer didn't come easily. An answer actually came after the first time I had been arrested. And the first time they sat me down and showed me the gun, the first time they said they would kill me, he said, that's when I had to struggle through. Would I be faithful? Would I submit? He said, you'll never understand the power of full surrender full submission to Christ till you fully see your cross. That's what helps us when the wants that we have and the Father has for us do not align. We go back to the cross and submit. Now, one of the reasons that submission is hard, particularly over our wants, is usually our wants are linked with fears. Uh, take your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 26. You're in Matthew 16. Go to Matthew 26, 10 chapters. But one year will pass from 16 to 26. What will happen in Matthew 26 uh, in a five-hour window from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. will feel like a year in the life of Simon Peter. Here's the background that will get us ready for 26. Uh, Jesus has been in Gethsemane praying. Peter, James, and John are off He's asked them to pray too. They just keep sleeping. The third time he comes back, he just simply says, guys, they're here. And this is where it goes into high RPMs. Uh, they, they see Judas coming with an entourage of the temple guard. Judas kisses Jesus. There is a skirmish. Quickly, somebody loses an ear. Jesus stops everything to heal the ear. They take Jesus again now, and the parade takes them to the house of Annas. Now, Annas is the power behind all the proceedings that we're about to hear. 
They go to the house of Annas, they have a mock court, and then they take him to the house of Caiaphas, the current high priest. Annas is a past high priest, but Caiaphas is his son-in-law, so they're keeping the power in the family. And they take him to Caiaphas, where there again, the mock trial, and Jesus is hit, slapped, mocked, spit. And Peter has been able to walk with this, this whole time, undetected. Nobody's looking at him. Until verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said. You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them saying. I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Fear. And to be fair with Peter, it wasn't just one fear. To be fair to us, it's usually not just one fear. For Peter, he was standing out from the crowd, no longer hidden in the safety of anonymity. The fear of standing alone against popular opinion. He's now the target of their anger. The fear of stepping away from his background and comfort. Easily he could have said, hey, I'm just a fisherman. In fact, let me just go fish. The fear of stepping into the unknown. Uncertain where all this will lead. It's like blood in the water and the sharks are circling him. All of these are surrounding him. So how do we know Christ in our fears? Particularly as I looked at the life of Christ and I thought, I don't think he was ever afraid. And then I went back to that prayer in Gethsemane. Why he would pray, Lord, is there another cup? Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but if I read it like a human and get into this and step into the text, I can share this would be a concern of mine if I were Christ. I've got the cross before me tomorrow. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us that before the foundation of the world, Christ as part of the Trinity, the beautiful love relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are one, together wrote the beauty of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, and the apex of it is the cross of Christ. It upholds the holiness of God for which God is jealous and will not budge. It displays the love of God and then the grace of God that he would take on that punishment for us to uphold his holiness that we might know him. That's the pivotal part. And Christ knew that. But here's the part that would be unknown. 
Since God is holy, the Trinity is holy. Christ in this moment of crucifixion in order to satisfy God's wrath has to be made sin. And for the first time in eternity, that means that Christ would not be part of that love affair within the Trinity. If I'm seeing it that right, the fear that would overcome me to not know that. But here's the other thing. To be in the Trinity and to have disdain for sin, you know throughout Scripture, God would pour out his wrath on sin. As part of the Trinity, Christ is part of the, the, ones, the, the, the entity that's distributing the wrath. He's never been the recipient of God's wrath. And yet, Christ submits in the midst of this fear. How does he submit? What draws him to it? And the only thing in my mind that came to this, as part of the Trinity, writing the story of salvation, making this a pinnacle, but also the Trinity writes the rest of the story. Christ knows the ending. He knows the crucifixion will satisfy God's wrath. He knows that uh, the resurrection will enable us to have the Spirit of Christ open our eyes to what is true in this fallen world and be adopted by God. He knows then also that in the end, we get to be with Him. And He is seen in His full glory. You get to see it in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. He knows the rest of the story and therefore submits in the midst of his greatest fears. In this fallen world, fears will wrap us like kudzu. Oh, I hate kudzu. I've been taking it out of my shrubs all Saturday. And I watch it wrap around tight. And then wrap with other kudzu to make sure it's locked in. And it's such an effort to get it off. And yet Christ submits in his fears. And the beauty for us, when you look at the end of the story, you realize that in this fallen world, all cut zoo, all sin will be gone. And scripture says, just as we are fully known by God, in that moment, we will fully know. No crying, no weeping, no mourning, no pain. Therefore, in this short window called our life, we submit in our greatest fears for the glory of God that we know is true and that we will see. What happens when you come to those fears? And part of those fears are your own limitations to actually obey. Your own limitations you feel to honor the Father and see it through. How do I submit then? Go back to Peter. Take your Bibles now to John 21. We're continuing his life, continuing his experiences. When you get to John 21, Christ has been crucified. He, he has raised from the dead. He, scripture records three accounts where he, 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 he visits individuals. And in this account, it's Peter. There are other disciples there, but you have the conversation. It seems that Peter is targeted. And you remember that Peter has denied Christ three times. And in this encounter, Christ will ask him three times, do you love me? What a loving, restoring conversation. 
But as you get into this, uh, you probably already know this already, but the first way that Jesus says this, he says, do you love me? And the first time is, do you agape me? It's the love of God. He's basically saying, do you love me, Peter, the way I love you? And Peter honestly says, I love you. But in the Greek, it says, actually, I phileo you. I love you like I, I love my brother Andrew over here. The second time is if, did you really hear me? And Christ says again, do you love me the way I love you? And, and Peter says, I, I, I love you like Andrew. It's this third time where Jesus changes it and says, okay, you say you phileo me. You say you love me with with that love, not the love I have for you, not my degree, yours. Is that true? Is that all that you have for me? This phileo, the love of Andrew? Having heard that, pick up verse 17 with me. And Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Do you love me like Andrew? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that's all I got. You know I love you. I love what Jesus does. Okay, feed my sheep. Not get away from me. Not work on that and come back. Give that to me. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me, follow me. Now, the beauty of this is, is the picture he is given is both of a crucifixion and of a child. Not a child being crucified, but of a child to be dressed. He stretches out his arm. When you were young, you would stretch out your arms. Somebody would dress you and carry you where you did not uh, want to go. I, I have my grandchildren right now, and it's the sweetest thing to watch them do this with me. It's the hardest thing to dress them. But it's the sweetest thing with that trust to do this. And we get them ready. We pick them up and we go. They are carried. Even in the midst of something that may be frightening to them, they latch on and they know we've got them. And there's a security there. In the picture also, because Christ says this, this is what death you'll have. Not death by being carried, but death by carrying a cross. And Peter traditions tells us was crucified and by his request feeling unworthy to be crucified like Christ he said crucify me upside down the amazing thing is this word dress yourself it appears only one other time in all the New Testament and it too was told to Peter it's in Acts chapter 12 verse 8 and Peter is in prison, asleep. All the church knows because of what's been happening. Even Peter, I'm confident, knows that the next morning he is to be executed. And yet when the angel of God comes in to liberate him from that prison, 
He has to hit him, kick him, really wake him up from this deep sleep. I would not be sleeping. I just have it in my being. Peter was experiencing what Christ promised. And is being carried. Even though this is the same guy who said, I don't love you the way you love me. So how do we deal with the limitations that each of us will have? We're fallen, every one of us. And the Father is still conforming us to the image of Christ. So we will always be in a conforming state until Christ comes. So how do we deal with our limitations in this world, personally, spiritually, and in our experiences? For me, the peace is knowing that Christ will carry. And in this one, because he has no limitations. Never has. Never will. And promise to carry. Therefore submit with your limitations. Trusting him to compensate because he has none. I say all this to go back to, to one thing. It's a picture. Um, this is my oldest son said. Dad I don't see surrender in scripture. It's submission. And, and in now something with, with my youngest son. His college years. He, he had a job at a kennel. And it was, it was fun to hear him talk about the dogs, but he came home one time and he said, you know, Dad, I had the dogs in the yard today. And that was one of his jobs, let them out, let them play. But often there's a dog that will misbehave in the yard, want its own way and mess up with the other dogs. And so when Lee sees this going on and it's starting to stir everybody else in the yard, Lee knows what his job is, is to go grab that dog, which doesn't want to be grabbed, and pen it. It basically means he puts it on its side, puts a hand on its neck and a hand on its side and hold it down. And, and while he has it down, that dog does not want to be there. It wants up. It wants back to doing what it wants to do. This is not where it wants to be. And when it realizes it's not going anywhere, then the dog will be still. And Lee can say, I know it's being still, but I can see its eyes. It has not submitted. <laughs> it's just playing with me right now, so I'll get up. So I have to keep holding. He said, it's amazing, though. After a while, you can feel the dog breathe. It sighs. Its body rests under my hands. And I know in that moment it has submitted. So I let it up. He said, Dad, it's the funniest thing. I let the dog up, and he goes, ha, ha, it is just so happy with me. It is so happy with the other dogs. The other dogs are happy with it. It's because it has submitted to the alpha in the yard. And boy, Lee loved that role of being the alpha. And I thought about me with the father. Against popular opinion. When his wants are not the same as mine or my wants are not his. When my fears make me stubborn and resist. When I can give so many clear reasons why my limitations don't make me worthy or fear I can't do what he's asking or submit. 
the beauty of our amazing God is he puts his hands on us, holds us still. And we squirm at times, I do. I even be still at times just so I can have him let me up. But there is nothing sweeter than that moment when you know you're not getting up. And you have to submit. And then once you submit, you get up and think, why did I take so long? Why did I fight this? It's the sweetest thing. Submitting to the Father, my Alpha. When I do that, I get to know Christ even more. Would you bow with me, please? Father, thank you. How you purpose things in our life to bring us back to Christ, to see him, to be in awe of him, to know him intimately through those experiences, what his nature is like. Praise you for your persistence with me, with us. Praise you, Lord Jesus, for your example to us with the cross and your submission to the Father to come, die, rise, and open our eyes to the beauty of life with you. Father, you know that in just a moment we'll observe communion. Help us, Father, to give to you our fears and submit. Our limitations, submit. Our wants that are not yours, and submit. Even our acquiescing to public pressure and submit that we might know Christ. In Jesus' name, as we remain prayerful, I want to ask those who will help us by taking the elements of communion and go ahead and get at your stations just for a while. And as they are grabbing the elements of communion, I've prayed for us, but there is nothing sweeter than you voicing your prayer. You know how you've heard the Father today. You know where he has placed his thumb Speak in a way that is transparent. Lord, this is what I heard. And Father, I submit. And in just a moment, you'll be directed to take the Lord's Supper. You've been listening to a message by Mark Becton, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.